All right, good morning, Terra Nova. How we doing? How we doing? Hey. I hope we're excited to hear God's word. I hope that you are ready to be encouraged where you need to be encouraged and maybe exhorted or pushed where you need to be pushed. I want to start by showing you a seed. I have a nice slide of a seed here. And, you know, I love you. I can't lie to you. This is actually a peanut. Uh, did not feel like buying a bag of seeds, not using them, and you can't see it from a distance anyway. You see it's a peanut. So it's a peanut. But actual seeds, like the slide behind me, have the ability, the capability, the potential of producing nourishment. And they have the potential of producing more seeds that produce more nourishment and a lot of potential. But the way that that seed brings life is not by looking at it. No matter how hard you look at it, it's not going to do it. It's not by putting it on a windowsill or in some kind of display shelf, but instead it's by burying it in the ground. It's through death that life is produced through the seed. So, we are going through the Gospel of Matthew, and today we find ourselves in chapter 16, verses 21 through 28. And I'm going to read it to you now. The slides are behind me, and we'll see what the Lord has for us today. 16, the first book in the, in the New Testament, book of Matthew, verse, chapter 16, verses 21 to 28. Here's what it says. From that time... Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Or what will a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That's God's word. So last week, we saw Peter confess the divinity of Jesus. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. When Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? The deity of Jesus was stated, inspired by God the Father. This truth was set forth. But now Jesus is showing that he came not only to reveal his divinity, but also to suffer and to die and be raised to life three days later. It's a turning point in the story. Throughout the entire gospel, King Jesus has been displaying the kingdom to the disciples, to the people, to the masses, displaying the kingdom of God. But now, his attention focuses on his disciples to explain how that will take place, how the kingdom will be fully brought in through his death and his resurrection. So here's the main idea of 
the text today. The gospel includes Jesus' deity, death, and resurrection. Disciples follow his example of self-denial, and the destination is glory. So I'm going to say that again. The main idea is that the gospel includes Jesus' deity, death, and resurrection. Disciples follow his example of self-denial, and the destination is glory. Okay, so here's our roadmap. We're going to break that down into three points. Big surprise, right? First one, the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and that's in Matthew 16, verses 21 to 23. Secondly, his disciples are people that follow him in self-denial, discipleship of self-denial, verses 24 to 26. And then finally, number three, where does that lead? What's the destiny for those who belong to God? The destiny is of glory, verses 27 to 28. So that's where we're headed. Number one, the deity, death, and resurrection, verses 21 to 23. Check out those verses again. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So we have, we have the, the summary of the gospel here. Last week it was about the deity of Jesus. Now he speaks of his death and his resurrection. If you were given in some strange challenge, if someone, friend of you says, explain to the, the gospel to me in three words. This is what I would recommend that you say. The deity, the death, the resurrection. Deity, death, resurrection of Jesus. The deity of Jesus, both fully man but also fully God. The death of Jesus, who died in our place, absorbing the wrath of God for us. The resurrection of Jesus, when he conquered death and sin and was raised to life. Deity, death, and resurrection. The deity. Peter confessed it last week. It wasn't the first time that his deity was proclaimed. In Matthew 14, they were on a boat in the Sea of Galilee, and there was a storm, and Jesus comes out, calms the storm, he walks on water, and the disciples are not surprised, surprisingly, shocked by that, and they proclaim, you are the Son of God. You are not a normal person that can do that. He walked on the water, they proclaim, you're the Son of God. But one could argue that could have been an emotional outburst based on circumstances. But what we saw last week is a sober proclamation, a life belief statement, a core belief to live by. You, Jesus, are the Son of God. The deity of Christ is a creed, a belief to live by, his deity. But then he talks about not just his divinity, but also his coming suffering and death. It was part of his plan to suffer and to die. He says in verse 21 that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer by the hands of the chief priests and scribes. He must go. It was part of the design, part of the plan. Now, how long do you think he was planning that? Did he just come up with that in his conversation with his disciples? Now, let me tell you the next thing. I got to go to Jerusalem to suffer and die. Did he think about it a year ago? Did he think about it and plan it right before he called his disciples to follow him? The Bible says that it was the plan of God for the Lamb of God, Jesus, to be slain from before the foundation of the world, it was the plan. So 1 Peter 1, Revelation chapter 13, before God created the world, the plan was that Jesus would suffer and die for the sins of the world. So this tells us a lot of things. One thing that it tells us is that God is a planner. 
He's a planner. So this gives me a lot of comfort, and I hope it gives you some comfort too. When life seems chaotic, when something happens that you are convinced there's no way, there's a purpose behind this, remember that God is a planner. He had plans set in place long before our first breath here in this world. God's a planner. It was part of the plan to go and to suffer and to die. He says by the hands of the chief priests and Pharisees, by the religious leaders, but in, we'll see shortly, he will, he will describe to them, because it says in verse 21, he began to show them that he must go and suffer and die. He'll bring it up multiple times. The next time he brings it up, he'll say to suffer by the hands of men. On the next one, by the hands of the Gentiles, like all non-Jewish people. It gets broader and broader to show us Jesus didn't die just because of the decision of a few people. He died because all of us in some, in some way are responsible by our sins against the holy God that put him there on that tree. He must go to suffer and to die. What does that tell us about God's character? That he's not just, that he's not just a deity that stands back and watches as people experience pain in this world, but that he went and experienced that same pain and infinitely more as he died on the cross. What does that tell us about him? There's a quote from Teach the Text Commentary. It says this, His death was not simply the messy bit that enables our sins to be forgiven, but the cross is the surest, truest, and deepest window into the very heart and character of the living and loving God. It shows us his compassion, his love for people like you and me. So Jesus tells his disciples he must go and suffer and die. This wasn't something he told them on day one. There was a timing to this conversation when he reveals this hard truth to them that he has to go suffer and die. There's a timing to God revealing things in our lives. He doesn't tell us on day one as a baby exactly what's going to happen in our lives and all the hard things we have to go through. We wouldn't understand anyway, would we? doesn't tell us when we turn 20 exactly what's going to happen 10 years later. There's a timing for when God reveals painful things in our lives as well. The deity, the death, but also the resurrection is proclaimed here in these verses. Now, I want to reread it because if you're like me, you already forgot a lot of what I just said. (laughs) And I want to see if you notice something. Verses 21 to 23. From that time... Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So here's the scene. Jesus tells his disciples, I have to go suffer and die and then be raised three days later. Here's the response. The disciples seem to be silent, upset, sad about this. Peter snatches Jesus, brings him aside, and and rebukes him. This will not happen to you. It's as if they missed the part where he comes back to life. (laughs) Did you miss that? He tells them he's going to suffer and die, but then three days later, he's going to be resurrected. He's going to come back to life. But they only seemed to hear. It's like their ears turned off after the suffering and dying part. Do you ever, when you're going through something hard and when you're suffering, when you're in pain or you hear bad news, 
it's really difficult for us to get to the next part. It's really difficult to get to the glory while we're in the suffering or to hear how something good can happen from something that seems just so terrible. Bad news. I think we can relate to that. Peter takes Jesus aside. And just picture this. There's some humor in this. He takes the Son of God and rebukes him. (laughs) Bad plan, by the way. He rebukes him. This will not happen to you, Jesus. Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. That must have been a shocking statement for Peter to hear, wouldn't it? What did he just call me? He just called him the devil. Peter, who just a short time ago was inspired by heaven to say, Jesus, you are the son of God. Now he's uttering hell-inspired words, being manipulated by the devil to put a stumbling block before Jesus. Peter, the one who just said something that Jesus said, I will build my church on that. That that the rock, the foundation of the church is, is Jesus. And Peter just declared that. Peter, whose name Cephas means rock, is now a moment later a stumbling block. He went from helping people know God better to now hindering them from knowing God. And before, again, we put Peter under the bus, how do we do that sometimes? <laughs> do you ever find yourself helping somebody and what you do and what you say? You're, you're someone that's steering people towards the Lord, and then maybe a moment, a day, an hour later, you're saying or doing something that people actually have to go around you to get to God. We go from helping to being a hindrance and how we know we need help to be people that are pointing people to Christ consistently. He says to Peter, you are thinking, your mind is on the things of man, not on the things of God. They can often be against each other. Galatians 5.17 says, for the things of the flesh, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. They are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So there's a battle going on in these minds of ours to live either for ourselves, for the world, or for God's agenda and God's kingdom. Our kingdom, his kingdom. Our ideas of what we should do for our lives, his. And so this battle's raging. I want you to notice this is the second appearance of the devil in the book of Matthew. The first one, the last time we heard of Satan, the adversary of God, was back in Matthew 4, where after Jesus is baptized, the Spirit of God leads him into the wilderness, and he's tempted for 40 days. And now, all this time later, about three years later, we have the second appearance. And he's doing the same thing, by the way. Before, he was trying to get Jesus to to escape the coming suffering and the cross and just get the glory right away. Bow to me now, and you don't have to do and go through with those things. And now he's doing the same thing. The kingdom without the cross... The glory without the suffering. And Jesus wasn't done yet fighting this. We're going to see soon in Gethsemane. He's in agony. He's, he's agonizing over the idea of suffering and enduring the wrath of God for the sins of the world. It was a temptation he was still facing. But this time, the devil used a friend, a close friend. Isn't that interesting? We have people in our lives that might you might even say, there, there are... They're a rock in my life. There's someone that is, that is consistently helping me in my relationship with God and helping me be a better person and all that. But that doesn't exclude that person, that human being, from at times saying or doing something that is very contrary to the Lord and to the kingdom of God. And it's focused just on the here and now, and as Jesus would say, the things of mankind rather than the things 
of the Spirit. The gospel includes Jesus' deity, his death, and his resurrection. And this leads into the next point. Disciples follow his example of self-denial. So in verses 24 to 26, he uses what Peter just said as a teaching moment. He turns to his disciples and he says this. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in return for his soul? So he's talking about death again. But now Jesus isn't talking about his own imminent death. He's talking about the death of those who follow him. For, for his disciples, a life of self-denial, of choosing his kingdom, not ours. His ways, not ours. His ideas of what success is, not ours. He says, pick up your cross and follow me. The disciples would have known all too well exactly what he was talking about. The Romans had this very cruel practice of not only crucifying people for rebelling against the kingdom. All non-Roman citizens were, if they did something that, Caesar, that the Caesar found worthy of crucifying them, they'd be crucified. But not only that, they would have to carry their cross to the location to where they would be crucified. And so they know exactly what Jesus is talking about when he says, you have to pick up your cross and follow me. When someone saw a person in the Roman Empire carrying a cross, they knew one thing for sure about that person. They were not seeing them again. They, they were, that was a dead man walking. They lost their rights. They lost any ideas they had about their future and about what that would look like. That was a dead man walking. And Jesus says, you want to you follow me? You have to die. Die to yourself. Die to your agenda. Can that lead to physical death in following Christ? Well, history tells us absolutely it could. More martyrs, more people killed for their faith in the 20th century than all the previous centuries combined. Might that happen to some people in this room? Yes. And I'm really, I'm really not doing my job if I lie to you and say that's not a possibility. It is. When you, when you give your life to Christ, that's your whole life, no matter where that, where that leads. And look, I don't want to overemphasize or glorify martyrdom, and I don't want to underemphasize it. But I know for myself, I have in the past probably over-glorified it. That, that somehow thinking that moments or hours of dying physically for your faith is like the end-all, be-all of the Christian life, it's not. Not to overemphasize it or to underemphasize it, but the Christian life is one that is daily saying, Lord, help me live for you and not just for myself. Help me live for your kingdom, not the one I'm trying to create on my own. Help me follow you, Jesus. No matter what the cost, it's a daily decision. Die to ourselves to live for him. But when we make that decision the first time, authentically, genuinely saying, Jesus, I confess my sins and I believe in you, my Savior, who died for me and rose again on my behalf, he begins that changing of our hearts, that desire change, to want to live for him and to follow him. And the more we know him, the more we want to follow him, no matter what the cost may be, but we die to ourselves every day to say, Lord, help me choose you, not me. Help me choose you, not somebody who might seem appealing and know the direction to go in this life. It's about giving up our self-interest, self-promotion, our ideas of what success means in this life. It's not survival at all costs. The winner of this game of life 
Life's not a game, but you know what I mean. It's not who lives the longest. That's not the goal. It's giving up our reins and asking God to take over. Giving our whole self, our life or soul, however that's translated in verses 25 and 26 to you in your Bible. The word psyche, your soul, you're giving it to him. Not just your Sunday mornings, but all of your days. Not just some of your uh, finances, but all of it. Not just some of your abilities and, and, and successes, but all of it giving it to him. All of your failures, all of your dreams, all of it saying, Lord, it's yours, not mine. Take the reins. How are we doing there? Some of you may ask, and I've asked, if I really hand over my whole life to Jesus, won't I be missing out on something? Won't there be something that I'll miss out on life if I truly gave everything to him and wanting to live for him? And Jesus answers that by saying, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? We can get everything we possibly could dream of that we think we want, that we think would fulfill us or complete us in some way. And at the end of the day, we are designed by him and for him and to truly find yourself you got to lose yourself. That's what he's telling us. We are made for him. And the way that we miss out on what we've really been made for is when we say no to Jesus. He says, what can a person give in exchange for their soul? In a world where money seems to be able to buy almost anything that you want, you can't buy your soul. It's priceless and for the Lord. He says, embrace Jesus, his life, his resurrection, but also his shame and his death. The whole picture of what God reveals to us, of what it means to follow him and to identify with the Lord. Our souls were made by him, for him, and following him now is more than worth it. The gospel includes Jesus' deity, death, and resurrection. Disciples follow his example of self-denial And finally, the destination is glory, verses 27 to 28. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. We see in these verses the second coming, this great summons and a sneak preview. Second coming, coming, a summons, a better word would be judgment, but I have more Baptists in me than I realize, and i got to get an S there, so summons, valuation. And then finally, the sneak preview. So first, the second coming. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. If you need hope today, or if you need a reminder of why it's worth to drop the keys, drop the reins of your own life, and hand them over to him, please listen again to these words of Jesus. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Daniel 7 and 2 Thessalonians 1, I'm going to paraphrase. Both of these passages talk about the same thing. The Son of Man, Jesus, will return in power and fire with his heavenly host in glory like we've never seen before, and he will relieve his people, and he will avenge the wicked and set up his eternal kingdom on earth. That 
is going to happen? How do we reorient, reshape, rethink our lives based on that coming day, the second coming? Then he talks about the summons, the judgment, the evaluation, the assessment. He says he will repay each person according to what he has done. I've heard Western preachers have called this the great roundup, the judgment day. I've heard it called the checkout counter, and that's my favorite one because it gives me this, this picture, this idea, at least in part, of what that day is going to be like. The checkout counter. Name, name your favorite uh, supermarket around here. Aldi's. Aldi's yeah. <laughs> okay. So do they have shopping carts in Aldi's? Okay, so pretend every single human being is in a giant, biggest Aldi's you could ever imagine. Every human on the planet. Krista would be so excited the whole time. But everyone is in Aldi's, and we each have a shopping cart. Every person. And in that shopping cart, we are putting things in it, grabbing stuff. And imagine the things we're putting in the cart are all the decisions that we make, all the words that we say, Jesus said earlier in Matthew 5, every word will be accounted for. Everything we say, every decision we make, whether good or bad, whether sinful or whether heavenly, whether we're helping people or hindering people, know God better, or, or every single decision we make is being put into that cart as we go, day by day, day by day, putting stuff into that cart. You imagine that? Now, a lot of people, including us, at times, think incorrectly that because a lot of time has passed, that there's no checkout counter. But the reality is, there is a checkout counter. And before any of us leave the store, before any of us leave this place called Earth that, the God, that God has created, there is a checkout counter. There is a judgment. There is a day where God will repay each person according to what he or she has done. Isn't that sobering? The checkout counter. Now, when we belong to Jesus, Romans says, Romans 8 says, and in a bunch of other places, the same idea, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What that means is, all that nasty stuff you shouldn't have thrown in that cart that you did is paid for by Jesus for you. That's really good news. And the more we understand the, the sinful things, the things we've done to offend a holy God and hurt ourselves and other people, the more we get that, the more we can say, praise you, thank you, God, for doing that for me, for paying a bill that there's no way I could afford. Praise God. And all those good things you've been putting in that cart, all the ways that you've obeyed, trusted, helped had the Spirit of God lead and, and move in your life in a way that makes an impact on people. All those things, all those prayers, all the ways that we followed God, all of that is going to be rewarded on the judgment day, on the day of the great summoning, at the checkout counter. All of it. The great summons. These events that are coming, the second coming, the judgment day, and then finally, he gives a sneak preview. Verse 28. Some listening will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What does he mean by that? 
Well, there's three views, and I'm going to be super quick because most of you just don't care at all about these three views. First one, 70 AD, Romans destroying the temple, burning Jerusalem. Some will say that's the sneak preview. I don't think so. If you think it is, talk to me about it. Uh, I don't think it's that one. Second one, the transfiguration. That's the sneak preview he's saying of the coming glory of the Son of Man, which he will take some of the disciples up a mountain that's now called the Mount of Transfiguration and reveal his glory to them. Some think it's that view, which we'll talk about next week, by the way. It'll be Pastor Ed up here giving his last message as the lead pastor at Terra, talking about the transfiguration. What a great message to end with here with us. Please come to that or, or send a letter. Show your appreciation and your love, if you can, for, for Pastor Ed and for Diane. He'll be talking about the transfiguration next week. And then finally, the last view is the resurrection and the ascension. That's the glory, the sneak preview that he was talking about for his disciples. I think it could be two, three, maybe both two and three. Not entirely sure about that. But a sneak preview about the coming glory and the kingdom of the Son of Man. And you know, we get sneak previews too. We get little glimpses of the coming kingdom of God as well. Whenever you see in our church and churches around the world people that show love and respect and kindness and forgiveness and the joy and the peace that God gives, sneak previews of the coming kingdom of God that will entirely take over the world that God has made. And you know, I wouldn't be surprised if God gave you a different kind of personal sneak preview of his coming kingdom. I've asked a lot of questions to a lot of believers and people that I respect, and I've found that with a lot of them, there's, there's one or two experiences they've had where God, in some way, shows them a preview of the life to come. And those are their stories to tell, not mine. And if you're here thinking, well, that hasn't happened to me and I haven't had that kind of sneak preview of the coming kingdom, my response is, are you still breathing? Yeah, we'll see what he does in your life as well. And maybe that's something you can even ask for. Lord, get, make it more real to me. That day that's coming when you're going to recreate this world, new heavens, new earth, with that judgment day, that great day where all of the deeds done in the body are going to be laid before the king of the world. Lord, make that real to me. Sneak preview. We started with a seed, which is actually a peanut. (laughs) And we saw in this message today, in the text in Matthew 16, he tells us to die to ourselves to die to our agenda, to our kingdoms, to what we think success is, to die, to pick up the cross and follow him, to say, Lord, your way, not mine, whatever the costs might be, help me live for you. As Paul would say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And we can all say, yes, Lord, help us to say no to ourselves and yes to you, to pick up the cross that you've given to us and to follow you. But I want to tell you, my hope, my comfort at the end of the day and at the end of my life is not going to be, oh, thank goodness that I made those decisions to deny myself and try to love other people more. And I'm glad that I said no to whatever that was so that I could read the Bible more or pray more or serve more or whatever more. That's not my comfort and hope at the end of the day, and I hope it's not yours (laughs) because that smells a lot like legalism. But my comfort, my hope, and I hope yours is too, is not our denial to self in the ways that we've succeeded or failed in that, but in that Jesus, the Son of God, 
did go to the cross. He didn't take that temptation from the devil the first time in the wilderness or through his friend that was being manipulated to skip over the cross. He went and he died for your sins, for my sins, for the sins of the world. He suffered. And because of that, because he died for our sins and because he rose from the grave three days later like he said he would, he conquered sin, he conquered death so we can say, oh sin, where is your sting? Oh death, where is your power? It's gone. Not because of us, but because of Jesus. That's the hope, that's the gospel, that's the good news of his deity, but also his death and his resurrection of King Jesus. So we're going to celebrate that as we take communion and the band comes back up. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you most of all for your life, for your perfect life. Lord, that you transferred over to us who have not lived perfectly, who have messed up in so many ways. God, thank you for not skipping over the cross, for not taking the shortcut. You didn't have to do it. You could have left us in our sin, but you didn't. You came for us. You died for us. And you rose again, conquering sin, conquering death. God, that is our hope. Help us, Lord, as we continue to follow you, to pick up our crosses, to listen to you daily, to follow you no matter what that costs us, Lord, to give you all of our hopes, dreams, successes, failures, abilities, concerns, finances, future, present, today, daily, Lord, to look to you, our God, our Savior, our Lord, our King. Lead us, we pray. Lead this church, God. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.